Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Things That Matter Most podcast, where we dissect practical and spiritual and cultural issues using Jesus's message as our starting point. My goal is that you find yourself encouraged, challenged, and equipped to live more like Christ every day. My name is Pastor Isaac, and I have the privilege of hosting this podcast. And in today's episode, I'm looking forward to beginning a series that's going to last for about seven weeks, where we're going to be looking at difficult topics to address uh, within our Christian lives and within the church on the whole. The title of this series is called, How Do You Know? And the first question that we're going to be asking is, how do you know that the gospel is reliable? As I think about the Christian walk, as I think about our faith, this is one question that we absolutely have to be sure of, and that is that the message of Jesus itself is reliable. And so that's what we're going to look to tackle in today's episode. And I hope that it is an encouragement to you. I hope you find yourself equipped to take those steps with Jesus, not only in your own life, but to help share the message of Jesus with other people as well. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode where we ask the question, how do you know the gospel is reliable? Well, I'm excited to jump into this new series that we have and and begin to answer some questions that um, are honestly a little bit difficult for people in the church to answer because um, when we begin to tread out into the waters of like hot topic questions or the reliability of our faith questions, um, sometimes we feel ill-equipped, sometimes we feel nervous, sometimes we're facing like a little bit of opposition. And so um, I'm excited as we dive into this because, again, the goal here is to help equip you to not only take another step with Jesus, but to have some confidence in your faith. And especially as we answer this question, how do you know the gospel is reliable? I mean, I'm really hoping that this gives you at least a talking point or a platform the next time you're in a conversation with um, maybe like your children or a coworker or a friend who is not a follower of Jesus. I'm hoping that this gives you some sort of a platform, a bit of confidence as you go into those conversations. And I want to tell you when I really realized um, that there is a deep, deep need for this to be discussed, especially amongst um, unbelievers or people that aren't followers of Jesus. So several years ago, um, I was in my place of employment and an individual and I were communicating about just kind of like our lives. We were sharing about our relationships, um, you know, our hopes, our dreams, whatever it might be. And um, I you know, just have like, generally speaking, a worldview that comes from being a follower of Jesus. And so I draw various assumptions in life off of that. And um, I know that this individual didn't. And the conversation kind of turned in such a way that uh, this person was talking about their religion. And um, I won't tell necessarily the whole story, but I'll boil it down to the important part. Basically, what came out of that conversation is that um, this individual didn't really associate with any sort of religion, but beyond that, he didn't really think about religion at all. He wasn't like atheist or anything like that, but he was just completely apathetic. Like he didn't think about it. It was not something on his radar. He was just living his life. And I kind of like wanted to push on that a little bit because I was like, okay, that's interesting because it's so contrary to like the way I actually live life, like the presuppositions I have um, just in my existence. And so we were talking about it, and um, I pushed him a little bit about Christianity just to kind of ask him, well, what do you think about, um, you know, these different things that he kind of continually went back to? I haven't really thought about it. I don't really know. And so I asked him one final question, and this one kind of knocked me on my backside because I wasn't anticipating his answer. 
I said, well, let's start here. Like, do you think that Jesus was a real person? Because in my mind, I thought to myself, okay, this is pretty much something that almost everybody can agree on. It, you know, Jesus is one of the most historically verifiable figures. Um, it, it's not really much of a question that, I mean, at the bare minimum that he was, you know, at least a real individual in, in like human history. And he answered me pretty much how he answered every other question, which was, I haven't really spent any time thinking about it. I know that he supposedly has something to do with the Pope and has something to do with crosses, but I've never actually thought about it or taken it very seriously. And it was at that moment that I realized, oh my goodness, the things that I hold to be fundamentally true, or at least that I take for granted, um, such as even the existence of Jesus himself, I can't do that with individuals that um, are not followers of Jesus, and at least individuals that are as young as this person was. Um, at the time, I believe he was 20, 20 or 21 years old, and um, now would be um, in his mid-20s. But that was the moment where I really realized that this question, how do you know the gospel is reliable? That question goes back way further than I think that we assume that it does. And I'm not here to uh, necessarily answer the question today about was, you know, Jesus himself, um, you know, a historical figure and what did he do? Those sorts of things, because I think that um, those are things that I'm going to take for granted that Jesus actually lived in the first century and whatnot. And we'll kind of look at that a little bit, but um, it was just rather that conversation that spurned me on to think, okay, I have to process this question um, or this idea of sharing the gospel differently because I can't even casually reference Jesus without actually clarifying who is Jesus? And that really began to like change my heart and change my mind on the way that I communicate. And so um, that's really like the foundation of what I want to talk about, which is this this thing of let's let's build and develop some confidence so that when we are in these different conversations with um, with people that are unchurched, maybe didn't grow up in church, or maybe it's some, you know, uh, children or students or young adults, um, is there a different way that we need to think and that we need to communicate to really get the message of Jesus across? And so um, this this is what we're answering. How do you know that the gospel is reliable? I think that it's important first to actually see what the authors of scripture um, say about this. As followers of Jesus, I think that we can go to the scriptures and we can see the mentality of the authors of scripture and how they process this idea. And this is the point I want to make. I think that the authors of scripture wanted us to not only ask that question, but they they push us to have intense confidence in the message of Jesus. They want us to, and they provide continual affirmation and evidence um, of uh, the reliability of the gospel message and our confidence in knowing um, that what scripture says is true. Let me read you a few things here. Uh, this is the beginning of uh, the book of Luke, and this this maybe actually might be one of the most uh, helpful <laughs> verses that we have in expressing, um, you know, the authors of scripture's intent that we have confidence. This is right from Luke chapter one. Um, Many people have set out to write accounts of the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating 
among us from the early disciples. Then this, this is what he says. I think this is so good. This is Luke 1 verse 3. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. So you, get this, this, this is huge. So you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. I think that that is absolutely beautiful. Whoever this guy Theophilus is, um, Luke is writing to him to say, hey, Theophilus, I want you to have confidence. This is this is what he says um, in the beginning of the book of Acts, which is really our foundation um, and understanding of the early church, what happened in the development of the early church. Uh, Luke says this as he writes Acts. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instruction through the Holy Spirit. So Luke wrote two books to this individual to help him know, hey, you can rely upon what you've been taught, and here's why. And then he gives this extremely accurate, not only well thought out, but well-researched um, biography of the life of Jesus, and then history of the early church that simply wonderful. And we know Luke, um, he traveled with Paul. He was there for so many things and he went around and we know that he um, interviewed various people and gathered his sources before writing these two texts. I think that that is simply incredible. Uh, we also see in 2 Timothy uh, 3 verses 16 and 17, this is what Paul writes to a young up and coming pastor named Timothy. He said that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And so we see that even the Apostle Paul pushed um, Timothy here to know that the, the scriptures are serious, that there is like a, a at least like a basic reliability of them that, hey, Timothy, this is useful to you. We know that God actually helped to inspire the creation of these texts and that you can trust that it's not only helpful to you, but that it, it will be useful to you in all sorts of various contexts. Um, I really love this. The apostle Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 3. Uh, let's see, 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. This is what he says. He says, instead, um, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And get this, ready? And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then, if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. I think it is simply awesome that he says, um, he says that if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Peter pushes here to say, have confidence in what you believe in this message of the gospel because it is true. And I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Um, last and certainly not least in regards to just, just kind of these, this few, these few verses that push this idea 
is Revelation 22, verse 18. Uh, This is what the Apostle John had said. He said, now granted, this applies to the book of uh, the Revelation of Jesus, so the last book of like the scripture that we have. Um, However, it's very easy to apply this to the whole scripture, and there's, there's thorough and accurate and reasonable ways to do this. This is what he said. And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words of this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. And so the Apostle John as well says, you need to be able to have confidence in what is written. And in order to ensure that if anybody manipulates what has been written here, which records the gospel of Jesus, which records um, the hope that followers of Jesus has, um, then they are going to be under the judgment of God himself. And so clearly, John is taking this very seriously. Um, And so now I want to move on to a text that I I really want to expound upon more thoroughly because I think that it is extremely helpful. And it's once again written by the Apostle Peter. This is in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 21, which is where we're going to hang out for just a little bit. So 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 12 reads like this. Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and have been standing firm in the truth you have been taught. So Peter is saying, I know that you already know this, but I'm going to push this ball down the field a little bit more. And it is only right that I should keep reminding you as long as I live. So he's like, listen, this is really important what I'm about to say. Ready? For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. So Peter's about to die. He knows that he's going to pass away. So I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I am gone. So something's about to happen to Peter, and he knows this. And so he's like in this last breath, if you will, I need you to make sure you internalize this and you know this. Verse 16, 2 Peter 1, 16 says, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice of the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on that holy mountain. Peter is describing an event Uh, that in the church we we refer to as the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus went up on a mountain. He was met by Moses and by Elijah, and those two individuals were with him as Jesus was bodily transformed into um, the glory of God. And it's actually kind of like, it's, it's a very interesting text. It's one that's a little bit hard to understand, but what it was was a 
foreshadow for the apostles that were with him or the disciples at that time, Peter, James, and John. And what they saw was the revelation of who this individual really was. And so they may have been convinced that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ before. But when they saw him transfigured into the glory of God, um, Jesus radiated and they could see that he truly was God. Um, it was an event that helped those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, um, be completely and thoroughly convinced that Jesus Christ um, was the Messiah of Israel. And so that's the event that Peter is referring to here. And I think that it is absolutely crucial when he says in verse 16, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. And I think that that is one of the most important components about all of the New Testament, which is the gospel account of Jesus and the history of the early church, that these individuals who wrote these things saw and experienced firsthand the things that Jesus Christ did and that happened in the early church. They are eyewitness accounts of all of the things that took place. And so I'm going to go into that more here in just a moment, but Peter wanted to say with, in a sense, with his dying breath, we didn't follow mythologies and legends and clever tales. I saw this with my own eyes and James saw this with his own eyes and John saw this with his own eyes. We're telling you what we saw. And this was hugely important to him and gave um, the recipients of this letter that he wrote, it gave them confidence. And and this is this is interesting because um, Peter doesn't stop there. This is what he says next. Because of that experience, right? Like I said, because they saw what happened to Jesus, they saw him in his glory on that mountain. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. Peter was very excited. After Jesus was transfigured and after they saw all of these things take place with his crucifixion, when they saw him resurrected and when the church was starting, he was like, oh my goodness, everything that the prophets had said and predicted came true. And I just want to share with you a few of the things that he may have been referencing, some of the prophecies spoken of in the Old Testament that I personally think are some of the most exciting. Um, just This is just, just a couple. Then I'll talk about where you can find some more. Um, let's see. The soldiers divided Jesus's garments and cast lots for his clothes when Jesus was on the cross. This was predicted in Psalm 22, which Jesus actually quoted some of Psalm 22 while he was on the cross. Uh, this is what it says in Psalm 22. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And this is exactly what happens in John 19, verse 23. Two other ones here. Um, scripture says uh, in the Old Testament, so that in the time before Christ with like the prophets, 
um, and the king said they would pierce his hands and feet. In Psalm 22, it says, uh, Psalm 22, uh, let's see here, verse 14 to 16, the end of it says, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil, an evil uh, gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And of course, in, in Luke 24 and in the accounts um, following, we know that Jesus uh, Jesus said, look at, hey, look at my pierced hands and look at my pierced feet, where he tells the apostle Thomas or the disciple Thomas, uh, do you want to, do you want to see, do you want to touch these things? We know Jesus was nailed to the cross, uh, which is what the psalmist was talking about in Psalm 22. And probably one of, one of my more favorite ones is that Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah says this in, uh, chapter 53, verse nine, he had done no wrong right? He was sinless and he never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's tomb. And in Matthew 27, we see that Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who was one of Jesus's followers, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. And Pilate placed an order, um, uh, sorry, and Pilate issued an order to release it to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a long linen cloth, placed it in his own tomb, which had been newly carved out of rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance as he left. I think that that's just absolutely beautiful. And that's just three of these prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, which were some of the things Peter said, we have all of this confidence now because we know this message was reliable. It's estimated, uh, and you'll be able to find this in the, in the description of the podcast, it's estimated that at a minimum, Jesus fulfilled 300 plus prophetic utterances about the Messiah. Over over 300. There were some things mentioned about the Messiah, the coming Christ, that haven't yet been fulfilled, which we know Jesus will fulfill. But just in his earthly ministry, there are over 300 ways that Jesus fulfilled these things. And, and so let, let's kind of pull this around. The question of how do you know the gospel is reliable? Scripture wants us to know the message of Jesus is serious from eyewitness firsthand accounts, from the, the way that the prophets spoke about Jesus, the way these things are, are irrefutable. Um, and Peter said, hey, listen, in the, this last breath that I have, I want you to take the message of the gospel seriously and know you can trust it. You can trust it because we saw it with our own eyes. We heard it with our own ears. The prophets predicted it, and it's all come to pass exactly as the scriptures foretold. So we're one step closer to wrapping our head around the answer to this question, how do you know the gospel is reliable? And this is this is really where I want to dive in because what makes us confident that the gospel is actually reliable? I think the first thing is to kind of lean into this idea of these eyewitness accounts, like Peter said. Um, there are, oh my goodness, book after book after book, probably volumes of books written on the significance of eyewitness accounts regarding the life of Jesus, like Peter mentions in 2 Peter 1, which we just kind of exhaustively went over. Um, and I also think it's it's good to note that the other um, authors of Scripture, they also were like there when different things were happening with Jesus, with the early church. Like they saw this stuff. Um, and, and like Peter said, they didn't just follow cleverly devised tales, but they saw with their own eyes and they heard. 
And this is just like a side note for for us as followers of Jesus when we talk about, um, okay, so there's like scripture, but is it, what does it mean like is, is like, how did scripture come about? Cause it's like human authors, but I'm pretty sure like, you know, we think like, okay, well God wrote scripture. Right. And, and like, how does that work? Like did God write scripture, but he wrote it with humans. Did he dictate to them? Like we ask these questions and I just wanted to share with you this quote that I had come across from Matthew Henry, who's a, a, co- a commentator, um, regarding, um, actually the whole scripture, he kind of goes through and breaks it down and he speaks here, um, about about the spirit of God actually guiding people as they wrote scripture. And I think that this is helpful. Just when the question comes up, well, who wrote the Bible? You can kind of reference this, and it's just helpful. It said the spirit, right? The spirit of God carefully assisted and directed the authors of scripture in the delivery of what they had received from him. Right? So he directed them. He didn't necessarily put the words in their mouths, but he directed them. Um, that they were effectually secured from the least mistake in expressing what they revealed. So when you're having conversations with people, well, did God write the Bible? Did people write the Bible? I think a really helpful and appropriate response is that um, human beings wrote the Bible with their own um, flair with their own style, with their own intention, in their own context, in their own culture, but that we believe that the Spirit of God helped to help them to understand what was to be written, helped to guide them in making sure that there was no fallacy or no lack of truth in what they were writing, and inspired them and revealed to them. Um, the revelation of God regarding the things that they were writing, that they didn't necessarily um, verbatim say, write this, but that the spirit of God within them and influencing them helped them to write in a way that was without error and would be helpful both to the original original recipients and to us. And so, I mean, lots of people have asked me, well, um, who, who is it that wrote the Bible? And I think that that's just helpful to go, well, God didn't necessarily, he like wrote the 10 commandments, right? Like he dictated those things to, to Moses. But as far as like the gospel accounts, um, these eyewitness accounts that were written down were protected by the spirit of God to make sure there was no fallacy and that there was no error. And I think that that's just a really helpful way, um, to explain, um, at a basic level to somebody who's not a follower of Jesus um, to understand how how scripture itself was actually written. And this is something that I thought was really helpful too, as we kind of round off this idea of the scriptures being wit- written by eyewitnesses. Um, I, I can't exactly recall who said this. I think it may have been, um, may have been C.S. Lewis or um, somebody else. I can't exactly remember, but the quote essentially goes something like this, that people are People are willing to die for something that they believe to be true, right? People are willing to die for something they believe to be true, but people are almost never willing to die for something they know to be a lie. We're willing to die for something we believe to be true, whether or not it is true. We're willing to die for it if we believe it's true. But almost never are we willing to die for something we know is a lie. 
And so when we go back into the first century um, and we look at the history of the early church, like it's recorded through Luke, like it's recorded through church history, there are thousands, tens of thousands of people that were martyred and killed because of their conviction that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was their savior, and that they would be with him in eternity forever because of the salvation that he authored. Uh, because of this, uh, sorry, because of the salvation that he offered. Not only did I believe all of the disciples suffer martyrdom um, and die for the message that they were delivering, but again, nearly countless people died under the hand of oppression. Um, in the first century. And, and that is so, so significant for us because it gives us a confidence seriously in the eyewitness accounts of scripture being recorded. And so this is this is kind of like, if, if I boil this down, here's why I'm stressing this point of the eyewitness accounts. Um, because what I'm trying to get at here is that at the bare minimum, we can have confidence that what was written was at least historically accurate. That at the minimum, we can know that what was written wasn't out of manipulation and wasn't out of deception. That these people, they saw it with their own eyes and were so convinced of it that they were willing to literally die rather than to say, no, this wasn't true. They were willing to die for it. And we're going to expand upon that a little bit more. And so I think that the next question I want to, I want to answer is what about a historical interpretation of these gospel accounts? And so again, in answering the question, how do you know the gospel is reliable? We have the eyewitness accounts and the confidence that we can have in scripture to what was written in the first century. But then what about the way that um, historically, these these accounts like the Gospels and and you know the the early uh, writings of the church, what do we make out of them in history? And uh, Craig Lane, who is like a leading Christian apologist, which is like a defender of the faith, philosopher and theologian, um, he's done some really phenomenal work in this area. And he points out something really helpful. He says that traditionally, or I shouldn't say traditionally, but rather originally. Um, the the gospel accounts were interpreted in the context of a polytheistic or multi-god or multi-deity world and were held to the standard of, of ways that um, we looked at things like Greek mythology or whatever have you, right? And so for, for the longest time, um, that was kind of the backdrop that the gospel accounts were held against to understand them. And so there are a number of problems with this. And maybe one of the largest ones is that when you have like a bias that you go into interpreting the reliability of something, um, it kind of can skew your, your understanding of them. Now, here's the thing. We all go into every situation with a bias. We're not going to be able to get away from that. But when you look at one text and and hold it accountable for a completely different context, then it becomes a little bit dangerous. Now, there wasn't um, some dissuading evidence necessarily for their reliability, but when it was looked at that way, it was a little bit harder. But then there was like this transition and the shift in the way that those, uh, the original gospel accounts 
are held accountable. And that was with the with with the majority acceptance of the reality that this text was written in the first century Jewish world by Jewish authors and Jesus was a Jew. And so now what's happened instead of interpreting um instead of interpreting like the gospel accounts and the message of these eyewitness accounts uh, in the first century from a polytheistic world and from an anything goes world. And so trying to figure it out from there. Now we're looking at what would the Jewish people have recorded? What standards did they hold themselves accountable to? And um, what type of worldview that did they have since these accounts came out of that world? And so I can't explain it all. You'll be able to see the full interview with uh, Craig Lane. Um, you can you can find that in the uh, description of this podcast. But what Craig describes is that that shift in understanding and in beginning to interpret the gospel accounts with a with a Jewish background has almost definitely made these accounts of the gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John. It has made them to be almost unquestionably biographies of a man that lived in the first century versus something that may be myth or legend or polluted with all sorts of other um, different things that can come out of like a polytheistic um, pagan sort of um, religious system. And so with a transition from um, from kind of that that original interpretation within within the past, uh, let's see, I, mean, I can't remember how many years, but within the past several years, to understanding this literature from a Jewish background, the the majority thought has transitioned to well, this is definitely the biography of an individual who actually lived. At the minimum, it's the account of this individual's life, um, and and I say that for this reason because I want to move into this next point that. Um, taking the accounts of Jesus seriously and at least knowing that what was written about him was at least accurate, whether or not you agree with his message is one thing, but at least knowing that the accounts that were written were not polluted right, by other sorts of influence, that they were at least accurate to what those original authors had said, um, leads me into probably one of my famous quotes made by C.S. Lewis. Um, who was a, an early in, in the 1940s and 50s? He was a Christian apologist. The guy fought through World War One, lived to write, uh, actually lived uh, through World War One, and was able to um, write a series of um, radio productions for individuals fighting in World War II to help them be encouraged in faith. Um, and so Lewis said this which was actually a thought that was originally stated by a guy named John Duncan in 1859. So this was not necessarily an original thought to C.S. Lewis. However, um, he kind of penned it. And I think that this is great. And again, it rests on the foundation that at the minimum, the, the gospel accounts are accurate records of a person who lived. And we have more confidence of that because of the Jewish context, Jewish, um, and how Jewish historians handled things and all of that stuff. Um, this is what this is what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says, "I am uh, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, 
but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the, a devil of hell. You must, not, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any uh, patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He did not intend to leave that open to us. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. When we answer this question, how do we know the gospel is reliable, sometimes we forget to actually talk about the gospel, to actually talk about the claims of Jesus of Nazareth who lived in the first century. And I think what C.S. Lewis is saying is that we need to make sure that we avoid this idea that we just say, well, Jesus was a good person. I don't really know. You know, as, as followers of Jesus, we need to avoid this idea of kind of having this lackadaisical or um, kind of casual approach to the claims that Jesus made. Because when we actually look at what Jesus said, um, we don't really have an option to go, oh, this is good. You know, it's not great, but it's, you know, it's fine. It's whatever, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's good for you or, or it's not really good for me, but you can kind of do, you know, whatever you want, which is that kind of casual um, uh, postmodern kind of mindset that, that sometimes we even have. Uh, but oftentimes um, unbelievers or people that aren't followers of Jesus have. The thing is, when you actually look at what Jesus said, the the guy was absolutely off of his rocker. If we look at that and we can say, yeah, uh, you know, the guy was, um, you know, a pretty good moral teacher. I think I can uh, glean some wisdom from him um, and I can leave some other things behind. Jesus literally, like C.S. Lewis said, Jesus did not leave that as an option for us. If Jesus, if you look at Jesus's message, the guy was either a madman <laughs> Or he was the son of God um, because Jesus's claims to be God are massively impactful to the rest of his message. Now, there was uh, one little plot hole with what Lewis said, which is that the idea in the teaching of Jesus may be disconnected from uh, reality, which, again, is kind of what we talked about before Um which is, can you accept at a minimum the reliability of the gospel accounts? And so, um, you know, with this thought of, well, maybe Jesus was a good moral teacher in the first century, but all of those um, claims to be God and all of that different stuff developed as legend later on. And I want to read this to you because um, C.S. Lewis actually addresses this too and kind of pushes the other thought even a little bit further uh, down the field. He says this, um, now, as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I am quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. Uh, the Gospels are not artistic enough to be legend. 
from an uh, from an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as if um, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of the uh, Platonic dialogues, there is no conversation that I know of in ancient literature like the fourth gospel. There is nothing, even in modern literature, until about 300 years ago when a realistic novel came into existence. What Lewis is saying is that the idea that the claims of Jesus could have been fabricated later on is completely false. There's no way because um, the gospel accounts don't contain anything that indicates they may be a legend or they may have developed through mythology or over time. And so therefore, what Jesus said doesn't leave um, open for interpretation that he was just a good moral teacher, but rather um, we have to really wrestle down, okay, um, it, were the claims of Jesus serious or were they not? Because we can't just say um, he was a good guy and I'm going to leave it. And so again, in answering a question, how do you know the gospel is reliable? I think you actually have to look at what Jesus said and you have to hold him to the standard of what he said. And he said, um, I am the son of God. And we we kind of go, okay, now what do I do with that? Um, because we know we have a, an accurate record of what was what was said. You know, we have an accurate record of the, the claims that he made and the life that he lived. But now, what is it that I actually do with that? And I have found in conversations with people that if I can chip through the barrier of the questioning of the um, reliability of the gospel, as we begin to get there, one of the next key things to do is to actually look at the claims of the gospel and see if those claims themselves are reliable. And so there's one last point here. I actually want to play for you a clip um, of an interview um, with Craig Lane, the individual we were talking about before, the Christian apologist. Um, a man named John Anderson is is um, interviewing Craig Lane. And, and I want you to hear this because this talks about one of the most important components to defending the reliability of the gospel. I believe that this next uh, this next clip, this next interview that I'm going to have you listen to will give individuals a bit of a pause if they really actually stop to think, oh my goodness, this is actually about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection account of Jesus. Something that is fundamental to the question of are the gospels reliable? Because again, kind of like Jesus's message, um, you know, being either crazy or completely true, um, the account of the resurrection from the dead of a man that was killed in the first century is a big deal. And we, and when, if we can look at that and we can say, yes, I can have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus or listen at the bare minimum, this absolutely looks like it's a part of history. Then you get to go to that next phase of what are you going to do with that? So check out this clip. If it's real, it changes absolutely everything. If it's not real, as, as the apostle Paul put it, more to be pitied are Christian believers. Yes. My doctoral work at the University of Munich was on this question, and I was quite taken aback, quite surprised to discover that the central facts undergirding the inference to the resurrection of Jesus 
are actually acknowledged by the wide majority of New Testament critics today, be they Christian or non-Christian, liberal or conservative. And these facts can be summarized under three main headings. Number one would be that um, the tomb of Jesus uh, in which he was buried was found empty on the first day of the week after his crucifixion by a group of his female followers. The second fact is that thereafter, different individuals and groups of people came to experience appearances of Jesus alive after his death following the, this his crucifixion. And then the third fact would be that the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead despite every predisposition to the contrary. Now, those three facts are not simply the possession of conservative scholars. Those are the widely acknowledged um, facts uh, about the fate of Jesus of Nazareth held by historical Jesus scholars. So the only question is, how do you best explain those three facts? And I'm persuaded that the best explanation of them is the one that the original disciples themselves gave, namely that God raised Jesus from the dead. And this is so significant because if that is the best explanation, that means that God has publicly and dramatically vindicated those allegedly blasphemous claims for which Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, and that therefore he in fact was who he claimed to be. To have confidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be is really this discussion of how do you know that the gospel is reliable? And so let's get right down to it. Um, I'm going to give you four tools for you to use when you are in conversation with someone who's not a follower of Jesus or who's questioning your beliefs or, for goodness sake, maybe even when you're questioning your own belief. So number one, um, a confidence that you can have that Jesus was a historical figure from the first century whose life and claims are extremely well documented. You can know that Jesus was real, that his claims that we have were actually made. I'm not telling you what you do and don't do with the claims that Jesus made, but you can have confidence that he lived that we have an accurate um, account of his life. We have, we have several accounts, but collectively we have a very accurate account of this man who lived in the first century that you can go to and you can say, okay, at the minimum, there's a reliability of the accuracy of the life and the teachings of this man. And hopefully some of what we talked about um, has given you that confidence. Number two, Jesus's message was too dangerous to falsely proclaim. It makes no sense to do this at the risk of your own life. Jesus was radical. His message was radical. His disciples continued his radical message. It got him killed. It got them killed. It got thousands of people killed. And it makes no sense to do that, to push that forward, to teach that message, um, knowing that it probably or likely will cost you your life. But yet we see so many people willing to die 
for the message of Jesus. And so then again, it doesn't necessarily um, tell you, yes, it's absolutely true. You should, you should embrace everything. But what it does is it gives us confidence to know that there's a reliability of the gospel because if it wasn't reliable, then people wouldn't have been dying in, in wave after wave of persecution to continue on with a superstitious lie. Um, and again, we see we see that kind of in in Peter when he said, "Listen, um, I'm about to die, and I want you to know this stuff is true. This stuff is legit. You can talk to the eyewitnesses." Um, something that I, I didn't actually mention. I thought this is fascinating as well that the Apostle Paul mentions that there was at one point in time um, the resurrected Jesus who appeared to five hundred people at one time and gave them instruction. 500 people. We don't know where or when that happened, but what we do know is that Paul said, you can still talk to most of them. I think that that is awesome. He said, he's like, hey, listen, don't don't necessarily take what I say for granted. Go talk to these 500 people that saw Jesus alive themselves. I think that's, that's pretty incredible. Number three, once we are aware of of the claims and evidence of Jesus, it's silly to ignore them. This is where like what C.S. Lewis came in um, and said, once you know what Jesus said, you can't just go, oh, I'm just going to let it let it be. It, well, you can, but it's silly to do so because the claims of Jesus are extraordinary. Like if somebody comes and claims to be God and then does all of these things and disrupts history in the doing you really gotta, you really gotta do something with this, right? Like it's not okay to just ignore. The enemy wants us to ignore it. The enemy wants us not to care. With um, the individual that I worked with, I told you about at the beginning of this episode. Um, that is exactly how the enemy was winning by by allowing Jesus's message and his life to be almost a non-existent thing. Because once you start getting into this question, it becomes very evident that we have an accurate account of this person, an accurate account of his claims, and we are compelled to do something with what is said. And then lastly, if you're a follower of Jesus, your own life is a witness to the gospel's truth. Don't, Don't discount the impact of your own life's testimony of the reliability of the gospel. Now, people's experience is not always particularly reliable, but it is always very helpful in helping us to understand. And um, your story or the story of somebody you love or the story of, of, of somebody else that you know, our own stories even today help speak to the reliability of the gospel. The person with cancer who has complete, legitimately like a supernatural type of peace in their heart and in their soul. That is um, a testimony to the reliability of the gospel message of Jesus. The way people experience provision unexpected in the time when they need it most. The way that ministries experience growth and have the ability to impact communities and people's lives is a testimony of the reliability of the gospel. Jesus is still active. He's still living. He is still working 
today to continually help us know the gospel is reliable. When when you treat your employees or your associates kindly, when you could be rude to them or when you could condemn them for something they've done, that's a testimony for the reliability of the gospel. When you don't lie and cheat on your taxes and your accountant sees that, that is a testimony to the reliability of the gospel. When you're honest and transparent with somebody you're selling something to, and they see that, that is a testimony to the reliability of the gospel. And so I would just encourage you, don't discount your life as a testimony to these things. And so collectively, as we've gone through that the authors of scripture, they want us to to know that we can trust these things as we have eyewitness accounts, as we have the backing of historical interpretation on our side and the 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 um the understanding that the Jewish culture interprets how we should see the text of the gospels and as we have Jesus's claims recorded and as we have all of this stuff come together you should know that that you have these four tools that Jesus's life was well documented that Jesus's claims were too radical to be willing to die for if they weren't at, at the minimum if they weren't true that they that they happened um that Jesus's claims are um too radical to ignore once we're kind of exposed to them and that your own life can be a testimony to the reliability of the gospel all of this collectively i'm hoping that it will equip you to go into the conversations with your family your friends your coworkers, um, people that you know that um, just really struggle with these questions. I'm hoping that all of this together gives you a foundation to begin that conversation on so that ultimately you can share with them that the hope of this gospel is that there's forgiveness of sin and joy to be given to us as we embrace life as a follower of Jesus, let's not forget that, that the point of all of this is that Jesus loves you so much that he died for you. Jesus loves you so much that he was willing to die on the cross, to take the penalty of your sin, to to buy you off of the slave market of sin before God. And now, to vouch for you before the throne of God. The Spirit of God is given to us to to seal us for eternity so that we will be with Jesus forever in the new heaven and new earth. This is the message of the gospel. It's not just about arguing that it's true. It's about realizing that Jesus loved us so much that he was unwilling to allow us to not have an opportunity to experience the kingdom of God for all time and life with him for all eternity. So be encouraged. Look to help people know they are loved by almighty God and that there is plenty of evidence to help them begin to take that step towards embracing that reality. (music) 
I hope that you are walking away from this episode feeling equipped to go into those conversations with friends or with family or whoever it might be and to say, you know what? I really do believe that the message of Jesus, the gospel, is reliable and I'm ready to dialogue about it. At the bare minimum, I'm ready to say, listen, there's enough evidence here that you should take this seriously as you explore it. And so, Until we are together again, I simply want to say thank you for joining in on this episode of the Things That Matter Most podcast.